1: Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community getting angry, venting their spleen and putting history to rights. We are the cathartic release for struggling historians. I'm public historian Paul Vavell and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host, fellow historian, Kyle Glover. Hello. Hello, Kyle. How are you doing? Yep, good, thank you. Yep, excellent. Great. Now, if you thought we royally took apart a British treasure last time with Guy Walters, well, this week we're going to court even more controversy. Ladies and gentlemen, to do this, we welcome historian, podcaster, and chair of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity, Zach White. Zach, welcome to History Rage.
2: Hi, Paul. Hi, Kyle. Great to see you both. How are you doing? So far, so good. I don't know why you've invited me on, because I've been looking at the quality well, of the guests nice. so far. And I can't help thinking that the sort of the sound that listeners can hear in the background is the barrel being scraped as you kind of <laughs> ask me to drag your listeners kicking and screaming into the dark side that is early 19th century <laughs> history. But it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite.
1: Oh, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, and, and like you say, the calibre of guests, you are absolutely top of the pile for Napoleonic historians we've had on History Rage. Yes,
2: definitely the best Napoleonic historian. Yes, but we both know that that's a backhanded compliment, my friends.
1: You know, as a Yorkshireman, I will take a backhanded compliment over no compliment any time. Believe me, we chased you up on this because we yes. wanted some early nine, early 19th century. We wanted some Napoleonic history because there's so many myths out there. I mean, if I was to just say Napoleon was short, I'm sure you'd have an allergic oh reaction right in front of me. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> but you know, that's, that's not what we're here to talk about this time. But anyway, I know you from Twitter and I pretty much know you from uh, your appearances on History Hack as well. But for our other listener, do tell us a bit about yourself and the numerous other projects that you're involved in.
2: Yeah, so I, I have a running joke, actually, that I look like I'm about 12 years old, which tends to go down quite well and be quite funny simply because it's true. Um, but I've been rattling around in this for, for a little short of a decade now. I used to be a history teacher, secondary school history teacher, loved the job, but also found it you know, just one of the, the most challenging things that you can possibly do with your life. Um, Hmm. So I I have a huge love and respect for teachers who can stick it for the whole 20, 30 years. But I was very fortunate to be offered a scholarship to do a PhD at Southampton University, working with the the archives there, because they have the papers of the first Duke of Wellington, who we're going to end up talking about quite a lot over today's episode. Spoiler alert, folks. Um, And I was looking at crime and punishment. Um, People make a joke that it's kind of my little kink to talk about flogging all of the time. (laughs) Which... uh, I, I say that actually, I was at HMS Victory uh, with my other half and she did say to me that I was a little bit too fixated with the cat of Ninetales whip that they had on display there. <laughs> um, but but let's move swiftly on from that. As you say, I, I am a podcaster in 2019, just before the lockdown, I started up my own Napoleonic podcast titled The Napoleonicist, which was a really bad marketing move because nobody knows how to pronounce the damn thing. But it's... <laughs> or spell it. <laughs> or spell it. Yeah, there is that. Um, But I'm also, as you say, now the co-host and sort of, if I glorify it a bit, the sort of commissioning editor of History Hack. And yeah, I'm the chair of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity, which we set up last year.
1: Oh, tell us a bit more about that.
2: Yeah. So this is, and I say this without any delusions of grandeur, this is like a massively watered down version of what the Commonwealth War Graves does for the First World War and and subsequent conflicts. So the idea is that basically if you go pre 1900, there is nothing out there Mm. to cover grave maintenance for veterans of the period, of any period. And there is nobody out there who is trying to put people back in the ground when they get discovered. Now, you might think, well, realistically, how often does that happen? And actually, it it does tend to happen. So I've got six individuals uh, in Spain who were discovered back in 2008. Mm -hmm. They're currently sitting on a box in a museum storage facility because nobody's got the money to do any research with them and nobody's got the money to bury them. And, you know, the start of the charity is, look, these are veterans and the sacrifice and the tragedy is the same regardless of what period they yeah. died in. And so yeah, it doesn't matter what war it is, does it? Precisely. And so we exist as an entity to turn around to these organizations and say, look, we understand the money issue. We understand you'll have other ethical issues. But if we can help, we can provide the money, we can provide the workforce. We're a specialized team. Everybody is. Uh, an expert in in some degree in the period 1775 to 1815, and um, we will do what we can to help and organise the yeah. burials, um, as well as funding the research and, in, if necessary, conducting that research. So it's a big multinational scheme. Um, we don't discriminate in terms of nationality. Uh, yeah. We don't discriminate in terms of service. So it doesn't matter if they're army, if they're navy, militia, volunteer, you name it. We will step in and we will do what we can to do the right thing by these soldiers
1: that's it that sounds like really important work um and we guys we will put links to you know all your websites and things like that in the show notes accompany in the podcast as well so guys out there if you can support that i haven't found a better military charity going
2: that's so very kind give, of you. That
1: a, give that a go well Going then from you know that which you're most proud of to uh, well let's go into that which you really really hate because nobody <laughs> comes on history rage to avoid getting angry. So, Zach, in your own words, in your own time, please tell us the historical thing that you really wish people would just get over.
2: Go. It's that it's that thin red line that holds firm against hordes of blue-clad French soldiers commanded by the genius that is napoleon in the final battle of the napoleonic wars the emperor who only loses because of being stabbed in the back by incompetent subordinates with much love and with a very heavy heart i have to break it to people waterloo really isn't all that it's cracked up to be oh oh the way we- I think I've probably just lost half my I can, listenership. I can feel
1: the hate mail coming already. Well, so you've just lost half our listenership, so you can have some comfort in that. Explain yeah, yourself. You know, yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if you would mind just very briefly
2: backing that the hell up. So Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I mean, you you asked me to come on here and get angry. Yeah. Um, yep, well. Go for it. <laughs> so let me break apart what I've just outlined Mm -hmm. to you, because there's lots of different parts of this. I started with the thin red line. I'm not being funny, but this perception that it was the British on their own who stood firm against Napoleon's army just isn't true. Two reasons for that. Firstly, there is a whole other army that is absolutely pivotal to not only how Waterloo plays out, but the whole Waterloo campaign in itself and the whole reason that we have a Battle of Waterloo Just a little army containing a mere 50,000 men under the command of a guy called Marshal Blücher. And they're all Prussian. Do we ever put that front and centre of the historiography? We really don't. You know, the number of times you will speak to a historian and they'll go, yeah, it's all about Wellington and the British. I'm sorry. It's just not. And we can talk about the reasons why it's just not. But there's another problem there. Wellington's army. It's not an exclusively... British army people. It's 68,000 men and it's a coalition force. 25,000 of them, sure, are British. 6,000 of them from the King's German Legion, ostensibly from Hanover. You've got a separate Hanoverian contingent of 11,000. You've got a Netherlands contingent of Dutch and Belgian troops that's 17,000. You put it all together, the Brits are actually not a majority within wellington's force so it's not about the thin red line the way to think about waterloo and that victory which is a, an impressive victory is that it's like 19th century nato those aren't my words actually they're the words of a veteran mm. that i interviewed who works for waterloo uncovered a guy called ben meade he's a soldier he knows a lot about kind of the the geostrategic issues in the world today and that was his first reaction when he was introduced to Waterloo Uncovered and and the work that they do. So that's your thin red line not being a thin red line. Then yep. let me deal with the Napoleon thing. Napoleon the genius. Um well <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I full disclosure, I'm a Napoleon skeptic. I I'm I understand the fixation with the guy, I understand why people love to romanticize about his achievements, but I am a huge skeptic. Napoleon was hugely talented, do not get me wrong. He was a very gifted military commander. But using the word genius is possibly the most unhelpful term in the whole of historical discussion because you're putting these guys on pedestals. And the second you do that, you lose all sense of realism and you lose all sense of judgment. So I don't like the term genius. Very sorry. Final battle of the Napoleonic Wars, I'm afraid it isn't it's not actually there is fighting around paris it's napoleon's last battle which yeah. in many respects is actually part of the problem and part of the mythologizing but it's not the last battle of the napoleonic wars and then this whole thing about napoleon only losing cuz he gets stabbed in the back by his incompetent subordinates actually the a lot of so a lot of these myths yeah. are tied up with the way in which waterloo plays out and A lot of blame is placed on a guy called Marshal Grouchy who is sent with a task to try and keep the Prussians away from Wellington's army. But the reason that Grouchy fails is because he's sent to do that task far too late by Napoleon. So Napoleon's fault that that plan never plays out. And then they turn around and say, well, it's Grouchy's fault for not marching to rescue Napoleon at Waterloo. And the reason this doesn't work is that Grouchy's whole aim is to keep the Prussians away from the from Wellington's army right but the point is Grouchy can't march any faster than the Prussians so by the time the Prussians have got there it's already too late Grouchy could physically have done nothing so you can just take this whole idea that oh it's you know subordinates fault and put it in the bin it's on Napoleon he's the commander he's the guy who conceives this campaign and he screws it up yeah the book stops with him. Well, in fact, the book marches mm-hmm. too slowly with him. Yes, yes, precisely that. I mean, there are other yeah. things that I could, you know, fill your uh, listeners' yeah. ears yeah. with. We are um, only
1: a 45-minute rage. Precisely, precisely. <laughs> um, I just want to ask if I um, if I can, because many of our oh, listeners, yes. given a fair few of the guests that we've had on before, would naturally be leaning towards interest in World War Two. Mm. Now, for those of us, that, are, and myself included, um, To be fair, my knowledge of the Napoleonic Wars stems from Sharp, Hornblower, Master of Commander, and Napoleon Total War. These are good good sources. Not necessarily good good sources. Solid, (laughs) you know, (laughs) good sources to get interested. But, uh, you know, in the timeless words of Manuel from Fawlty Towers, I know nothing. Um, Can you give us a beginner's guide to kind of how we arrive at Waterloo?
2: Yeah, wow. Hell of a question. A lot of love for Sharp. A lot of love for napoleon total war but as you say it doesn't necessarily give you the historical grounding where to begin uh well we could go but all, all the way back to the french revolution of 1789 um that's probably your starting point the french monarchy is overthrown louis yeah. the king is executed you have a revolutionary government that then starts to declare war on other nations well initially they are the other nations declare war because they're trying to restore the monarchy. And then it all gets a very, it turns into a very messy situation um, where the the French government becomes a little bit overconfident and just starts declaring war on pretty much every kind of monarchical regime. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it, it ends up being a very protracted conflict. So it runs from the very early 1790s all the way through to 1815, but it's a series of conflicts. The first phase ends in 1801. Um, when Napoleon instigates a, a military coup. We won't go into Napoleon's whole career, because like you say, 45-minute yeah, podcast. But Napoleon instigates a military coup. Now, that's an important point there. It's a coup. So if you're going to put Napoleon on a pedestal, he starts out deliberately using the army to topple a, a government. Yeah, an elected government at that. Precisely. Uh, and then there's this system of Um Then surprisingly, Napoleon being Napoleon, he decides that he wants all the power and so he quietly gets rid of the other consuls and then decides that that's not even enough and declares himself emperor uh, in 1804 it's happened so many times before exactly
0: i was thinking this sounds very familiar just change emperor to dictator for life that's yes i couldn't possibly comment on, on who you're referring
2: else. to there but <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another podcast so in amongst all of this you have a series of conflicts uh you you have the other nations of europe looking at what's happening in france and Initially, during the revolutionary period that Napoleon ends, there is concern about the possible impact of regime change, and you have a series of wars ebbing and flowing as some kind of equilibrium is is attempted to be created uh, between French interests and the other nations in Europe. Napoleon, he's a very different animal. He is incredibly gifted on the battlefield, um, and that enables him to then start dictating pieces because he's able to Blitz through blitz, not in the the sense that your World War Two listeners will know, but Mm. able to be incredibly successful on the battlefield, destroy nations, armies, and then leave them in a a position where they can't really argue. And that's part of his problem. Napoleon keeps requesting too much. And that creates resentment. If you want a World War Two comparison, think about this whole discussion around what happens to Germany in the wake of the First World War. Too much being taken from them breeding resentment and then potentially being a cause for a desire for revenge and that's kind of what happens on a different scale to napoleon he exacts too much that breeds resentment these nations then try to redress the imbalance that has been created because all of the power ends up being kind of concentrated within france and france's protectorates and you have this cycle happening where Napoleon is successful on the battlefield, therefore extracts even more. That continues to breed resentment and so on. It all starts to go wrong for him after 1807, when he's at the height of his power. So he starts to create something called the Continental System, because the one nation he cannot subdue is Britain. That's in part thanks to the Battle of Trafalgar. And as part of the Continental System, he tells every nation on the continent, you will close your ports to British shipping. Now, some nations, being independent aren't too keen on that portugal's one of them and portugal initially refuses then when faced with the prospect of a french invasion does what they're being told and napoleon invades anyway and that starts off something called the peninsular war which is then compounded by the fact that the following year in 1808 he summarily topples the spanish monarch and places his own brother on the throne that's a classic napoleon move part of his cronyism that he he does this he takes off other monarchs and puts his own family members on the thrones trying to sort of create legitimacy for his regime in a kind of de facto way by making all of these nations loyal to him by nature of their rulers now that goes badly wrong in spain that's where wellington arthur wellesley he becomes wellington over the course of the conflict is sent to the region with initially a very small british force and spends six years trying to fight his way across Portugal and Spain, and into southern France. But whilst all of that's happening in 1812, we have that very infamous invasion of Russia, where Russia decides that they've had enough with this continental system. And they're not particularly happy, and they will probably attack the French in the near future. Napoleon goes in with his Grande Armée, six hundred thousand men, according to some estimates, and yep. we know the story of the Russian winter. You know that utterly impossible factor to, to contend with that yeah. shatters the, the weather that has defeated every army that's ever wandered across it pretty much yeah um it's you know there's there's no reckoning with that well we say that but actually a lot of the uh, troops were actually killed by the summer and the the horrendous conditions really? yeah the horrendous conditions marching to moscow and but then of course the retreat back was absolute hell for the remainder of the force and that is the beginning of the end. You know, that huge army shattered about 10% of the force ever make it out alive. So exactly, you know, 90% casualties. And we're talking in many of those cases, you know, frozen to death, died through extreme heat, not battle casualties. With that army gone, Napoleon does his best to sort of rally the situation, build a new army, but the sharks, if you like, are starting to circle. The other nations see the writing on the wall and this is their opportunity to redress those grievances that they've held for so long. And so you get the Sixth Coalition. There are a whole series of coalitions. We don't have time for all of them, um, yeah. <laughs> which uh, is ultimately successful in 1814 in invading France and forcing Napoleon to abdicate. That should be it in 1814, but it's not. Yeah. Whilst on Elba, Napoleon looks at the situation and in some respects gets bored of life and exile also is aware that he's not getting the money that he was promised as part of the abdication settlement and also sees the restored Bourbon regime and goes, this isn't popular. I can do better. And also my former enemies are starting to fall out amongst themselves. So he returns from Elba and then discovers that he's made a massive error of judgment because the great unifier for those squabbling allies is Napoleon. And the moment the news arrives, that he's returned to France and swept aside the Bourbon king who's fled in the face of Napoleon's success because the the army rallies to Napoleon. Um, It's been described by some as another military coup. As that news arrives in Vienna, what happens? It just so happens that that precise moment is the moment that has been selected for all of these nations to come together to try and settle their grievances. And so in one of the worst timings (laughs) in history... All of these nations are at precisely the point where they can sit down and agree, we will declare war on Napoleon, not France, because Napoleon is not the legitimate ruler in the eyes of the other nations. They dealt with him before. They had a settlement. And the rest, as they say, is history. What we end up with is the Waterloo campaign, where he strikes at the nearest force, which is deployed in Belgium. It's the coalition army under Wellington and the Prussians after Blucher, because he thinks if he can strike at those first, he can make the other nations pause. He knows that the Russians are heading over. He knows that other forces are gathering against him. If he can inflict a defeat, he might just make the other nations sue for peace, which will buy him the time that he needs to rebuild his armies and regain that really cemented control within France. Mm
0: -hmm. A case of now or never, in the most literal
2: sense. Precisely. The clock really was ticking.
0: So after more than 200 years, how have we been left with this impression of the Battle of Waterloo and its significance when it really isn't?
2: Yeah. So in terms of the significance, my argument would be that this was coming anyway. Waterloo basically has been hyped up too much because it's Napoleon's last battle and it ends up being the thing that breaks what's left of his power. But the, the ultimate point is, you've got all, this whole coalition of allies that are coming for him. All that's happening in, in Belgium is Napoleon trying to stave off the inevitable because he knows the Russians are coming. He knows the Austrians are coming. And he knows that that huge invasion is going to absolutely overwhelm him. You're talking estimates of anything like a million men are on their way to France's borders. It's an impossible situation for him. Why do we yeah. overhype it? It's partly that thing. That history is written by the victors. There's an important point to make um, that initially, so when I talk about how this is a coalition victory, initially that was acknowledged by Wellington. So Wellington writes in his dispatch that he would not do, and I'm quoting here, he would not do true justice to his sentiments and um, reality if he did not attribute the successful outcome of Waterloo to the timely arrival of Marshal Blücher and the Prussians. So that was there for history to latch onto. But this is Britain. Wellington's not, you know, he's not grabbing all the glory there. Not initially, no. There's a big argument about does he do it subsequently. So when the Cyborg model, which now sits at the uh, National Army Museum, was created, it's this great panorama yeah. of the battle. When that was created, apparently, Wellington wasn't particularly happy about the number of Prussians that were on the field. So, you know, this this could be the whole thing of hindsight. And actually, he just wants to make sure that it's it's the British perspective that ends up being remembered. But at at the time, and I think it's worth saying that Wellington is massively shaken by what happens at Waterloo and the scale of the destruction. Um, At the time, he does the right thing and he acknowledges the fact that if it hadn't been for the arrival of the Prussians, then the outcome would have been very different. But at the same time, the only reason he stood and fought at Waterloo was because he knew the Prussians were coming. So this is a whole kind of coalition strategy. And it, it's very much that, the way in which Waterloo becomes embedded into the national psyche. Think about today, the number of streets named after Waterloo, I think is over a 1000, it might even be over 1200. Waterloo train station, you know, all of these places yeah. that just are, are nas- literally national monuments to the success. And in the process, you find that the involvement of other nations just gets quietly pushed to one side Mm -hmm. because quite often when it comes to popular memory, the subtleties of, hey, there were 25,000 British, but also can we spare a thought for the 17,000 Dutch and Belgian troops just gets pushed to the side. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what happens on the British side particularly. It's worth saying, actually, that we have different names for Waterloo. So on the on the prussian side what becomes the german perspective marshal blucher is claimed to have met uh, wellington at about 10 o'clock at uh, la belle alliance which is a tavern effectively just to the south of the battlefield it was effectively napoleon's headquarters in actual fact the meeting happened much further south but there's this beautiful painting of the two shaking hands outside this tavern la belle alliance and In Germany, to this day, the Battle of Waterloo is actually known as the Battle of La Belle Alliance because that was what Marshal Blücher wanted it to be known by. And it's a beautiful metaphor, actually. I I prefer that as a name, but that's by the by. You've also got the French perspective. Well, Napoleon's perspective, shall we say. For the French, obviously, it's quite a difficult thing to kind of reconcile in their their national history. You know, you had all of these glory years under Napoleon up until... 1812 and then you've got this very awkward coda that ends up being a huge waste of human life for napoleon there's a lot of explaining to do and there's a lot of mythologizing that happens when he is exiled to saint helena which is basically a rock in the middle of the atlantic they after the after what happened at elba they weren't taking any chances and they yeah. you know he becomes almost yeah. this like prometheus type figure just exiled into the middle of nowhere and kept under fairly
0: far as possible. Yeah,
2: exactly. And kept under very fairly close house arrest um, where he lives until 1821, where he dies of quite a painful death, actually, of stomach cancer. But whilst he's on St Helena, he starts to dictate his memoirs. And in the process, you know, this is Napoleon. He's got to try and reconcile what went wrong with his previous career. You end up with a lot of blame being pointed at other people. Um, and so in the process, the focus has kind of moved away from the fact that really, when it comes to Waterloo, the battle was lost before it even started, because the whole reason why Waterloo plays out in the way that it does is that Wellington is sitting there with his force of British and Dutch and German troops, and he's waiting for the reinforcements to come from Blücher. That is the agreement they reach before dawn on the 18th of June. Had they not reached that agreement, Wellington would have moved his army. He wasn't going to sit there as a a sitting target. And as a result of that, you have to look at why was that allowed to happen? And the point is that this isn't the first battle of the Waterloo campaign. There are four battles, actually. One that takes place on the 18th of June at Vavre, that is Grouchy sort of desperately trying to keep the Prussians occupied, but not succeeding. But on the 16th of June, You have two battles, Catrebra and Ligny, which are two kind of fairly important strategic positions. So Wellington has to fight off Marshal Ney, famously described by Napoleon as the bravest of the brave at Catrebra. And then Blücher is fighting off Napoleon at Ligny. And the, the Prussians under Blücher end up losing that battle. And that's the point where Napoleon has history in the palm of his hand, because this has been his whole plan to strike at these two Forces and push them apart, prize them apart, because together they outnumber him. So, just as he's at that point where he's about to achieve that strategy, he's beaten Blücher, he's pushing the Prussians back. He pauses. He doesn't order a really kind of rigorous pursuit of the Prussians. He gives them the night to then withdraw and reconcentrate. And that wastes crucial time because it means that when Grouchy is sent off to go find the Prussians, Grouchy doesn't know where the Prussians are because the French have lost contact. And so he spends his time desperately trying to find the Prussians. Yeah. All whilst that is happening, Wellington hasn't yet heard about what happened at Ligny. He's sat at Catrabra waiting for news from Blücher. The messenger ended up being shot, got intercepted by, by French troops and was shot in the press of trying to mm. get away. So the Anglo-Dutch forces, I tend to call it, is sat there on the morning of the 17th, a sitting duck. And instead of moving to take it, Napoleon lets his men rest. He lets them eat breakfast. He does a tour of the battlefield and, you know, makes a big show of, oh, we will take care of the wounded. All things that are lovely, but aren't what you need to be doing at the pivotal moment in a campaign.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got to think that there's just something about European dictators that give out mysterious stop orders when approaching the <laughs> British army. It's like so many times. <laughs> so many times. Well, th- thank you for that. And that's because that, that's given me more on the Napoleonic period than I ever got up to.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
1: school i mentioned my list of sources before my own sharp hornblower etc how do you think these media have have shaped our perceptions of the napoleonic wars and you know for you say you have a
2: lot of love for a lot of love for sharp you know
1: are they any good
2: yeah this is a whole rage in itself so i'll I'll try and rein myself in um,
1: yeah you've got about three minutes okay I'll, i'll do my best
2: um I think there's definitely something about the way in which they've shaped our perception, particularly well with Sharp. And I say this, I say I have a lot of love for Sharp because I came to this period through Sharp, through the Sharp's novels. So without that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. and, And I'm always going to be indebted to that. But at the same time as a historian, there's always this tension when you've got a novelization, right? That you know it's there to entertain, but you also know that some people finish the book and then stop and think they know it all about the period and yeah. and with sharp yeah. what you've got is a lot of mythologizing about one regiment the 95th rifles and lots of people have this perception that it the 95th of this almost sort of SAS star regiment that get dropped in to do these commando style raids and and it's all very great and and sort of swashbuckling and you know you put the 95th on a pedestal they're the best regiment out there they the, they've got the best in terms of discipline never a deserter from the units they never have to flog and the reality is, when you look at the records, it's all been a bit overplayed. Part of that is because Sharp builds yeah. on existing tropes. So we have a lot of memoirs from the 95th Rifles, from soldiers who fought, and we've had those for years, for centuries. They were the, the early texts that came out. And in the process, they've been quite keen kind of building this reputation. So you can't really blame Sharp for entertaining people really well. Yeah. The issue though, is that, People watch Sharp and they read the books and they, that's it for them to the point where I was at the uh, Royal Green Jackets Museum in Winchester many years ago now. Um, I think I was barely out of my teens and this guy yeah. walks into the gallery dedicated to them, the Napoleonic era, picks up the replica of the Baker rifle, the famous weapon of the 95th and just goes, yeah, that's Sharp in it. Puts the rifle down, walks out the gallery and that was it. That was his engagement. <laughs> with the, the history of the, the rifles during that period. And that's the tragedy. I think actually Waterloo 1970, the film is probably a bit of the reason why we have a lot of misconceptions about this because the Prussian element, again, yeah. kind of is, is downgraded partly because it's building on existing national myth-making and, and in turn it then reinforces it because people see the film and that's what they remember. Yes. But I think our perspective is just starting to change. We're starting to get really good translations of material. We're getting a lot more material as well. Um, so Gareth Glover's Waterloo Archive has been great. It's it's on something like yeah. 20 volumes now. And it's, mater- it's eyewitness material, effectively. He's gone to the archives, found all the material he can find written by people about their experiences at Waterloo. And then you get a sense of what it was really like on the ground. And if you pick that apart, you start to dispel these myths of who was doing what and when and who really defeated the Imperial Guard and all these other arguments that we've been having for 200 years. But whilst all of that is great, there is also this point. Mm-hmm. There are far more interesting battles out there than Waterloo.
0: Yeah, so speaking of those battles, if Waterloo isn't the game changer of the Napoleonic Wars, which battle or event is?
2: Oh, this is a good one. Um,
0: ha- yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. You can only Pressure. pick one. Oh, one and oh only no. One. Um, okay. In that case, I'm going to say it's the Russian invasion that's the all and all because that's the, the turning of the tide. That's the point at which.
1: Yeah. Again, European dictators,
2: <laughs> they so many parallels. Yeah. I mean, without that, then the what Wellington was doing in the Iberian Peninsula, in the Peninsula War would have meant nothing because he could very easily have moved troops in and just mopped up the British operation there and the Portuguese and the Spanish, because it's another coalition conflict, that one, actually, and could have therefore asserted a dominance over Europe. But by going into Russia and by miscalculating on that campaign, he ends up squandering all of that power and shattering that perception of almost, almost invincibility that he and the French army have built up until this point.
1: I suppose it's a. There's an element there. Going back to our World War Two listeners, there's, there's an element there then of like the first time we stopped the Japanese in their tracks, and like suddenly this, you know, mythical enemy can be stopped and can be beaten yeah. by British soldiers who just. Stay there are there.
2: murmurings of this. I mean, this is the big thing of the Peninsula War. It ends up giving the British Army a huge amount of confidence. It's not the first time they've beaten the French. The Egyptian campaign in the very early 1800s is a really good example of how the British army can be effective if it's commanded properly. Uh, That operation is commanded by a guy called Abercrombie, who unfortunately ends up being killed in the process. And the British don't have it all their own way. The whole issue that Wellington has in Spain and Portugal is that he's got an army of, in many cases, less than 50,000. And he's facing as many as a quarter of a million French troops dotted across Spain and Portugal. So there's this massive kind of disparity that in time ends up being redressed for a variety of reasons. That again, time people want to know more about that. Come and find me on Twitter or listen to your podcast or listen to my podcast. I wasn't going to push my own podcast, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, um, folks, you can come and find me there and and all will be revealed. But yes, certainly it helps and it helps in a big way that this British army is never beaten in the open field under Wellington. Yes, they have to retreat on occasion. Yes, there are strategic setbacks. But when it comes to the battlefield, this supposedly all-conquering army of Napoleons is checked. And what you find in, in Russia particularly is they are watching, and in Austria, they are watching very closely what the British are doing to the point where the Russians actually replicate some of the tactics that Wellington has used when they are withdrawing, in the face of Napoleon's invasion. So was Napoleon ever really a threat to Britain? He was, but only... How? Yeah, but only to a, a degree and only at certain stages. So in terms of a direct threat to the British islands, you know, the home islands, yes, he was because he did have a plan to invade Britain. He formed an army of invasion in 1803. And this was probably the best trained force he ever had under his command. This is, the crux of this is the army that then goes on to win at Austerlitz which is one of Napoleon's most impressive victories of all time. It sits up there. It's, it's an incredible engagement. But the threat posed by that force is never and the, the potential of that threat is never realized because of the Royal Navy. And of course with Nelson's victory over the French at Trafalgar, in particular, the French do not have that ability to gain control of the channel for long enough to be able to transport that army across and it's basically the geography that saves britain more than anything else and what you see in the wake of this is that kind of the the analogy that sometimes uses the lion versus the whale so britain as the whale master of its own domain in the sea napoleon master of all on the european mainland but neither can strike at the other really because of their respective bases the continental system is another form of threat it does create some serious economic hardship as he tries to starve the UK of trade, effectively. And you do see businesses going bankrupt as a result of that. But the the single biggest issue, I think, is the question of can you trust Napoleon? To which the answer is, uh, probably not. Now, that's not to say that the British are angels. You can't really trust the British either. But there is very much this sense that the integrity of other nations is never going to be secure, for as long as you've got a guy on the throne of France who has a habit of placing his own family members on other European thrones as and when it takes his fancy. Yeah, I can see that.
0: So just to expand slightly from the Battle of Waterloo itself into the main protagonists, if you will, um, what are some of the classic myths about Napoleon and Wellington themselves? There's obviously the classic Napoleon being
2: short, but what else is there? So how long do you want me to rage about this for? (laughs) Um, so let's start with the, the short thing. Um, Napoleon is around about five foot six, five foot seven, which is precisely average height for that period. Um, so he would be short by modern standards or shorter by yeah. modern standards, not tiny by any means. But because of nutrition and so on during the period, which was far worse than it is now, actually, people were just generally a bit shorter. Yeah. Um, the reason that this we have this perception is because of the brilliant caricatures of James Gilray. British propagandist he produces these utterly stunning satires that always have Napoleon as this teeny tiny figure, partly because you know they they can minimize him, and then ironically for this podcast, kind of have him raging as this little ineffectual yeah. guy <laughs> jumping up and down, yeah. not being happy about things, just like the three of us <laughs> so we've talked already about genius myths that applies actually to Wellington as much as it does napoleon that that phrase yes. military genius just gets bandied around. And I think it's plain unhelpful. Another myth that's out there, Napoleon invented the core system because he was this military genius. I hate to break it to people. When Napoleon was at military college, he was reading the works of a guy called Borset. Borset was the guy who came up with this idea that you move sections of your army on different roads, make sure they have the strength that they can defend themselves if they need to. And then you get to the battlefield faster and you can deploy faster and that's much better. That's Borset's idea. Now, Napoleon, he perfects that system. He is absolutely a master of the core system. But I hate to break it to folks. He didn't come up with it originally. For Wellington. Oh, he's a defensive general. He's the master of running away. Um, All he does is stick his men on a reverse slope and wait for the enemy to come to him. Well, there are a few issues with that. Um, First of all, since when was a strategic withdrawal ever a bad idea? Um, yeah, yeah, you
1: know, good point. point.
2: One hundred and one of military history: don't stand and fight if you a don't need to, and b, and b are going to lose. Precisely. You yes. know, come on, yeah. people. Can we engage the brain for a second? The defensive general thing: if you want to count up Wellington's defensive victories versus his offensive victories, there are more offensive victories than there are defensive. So, if you want me to rattle off a list, a site that people can go and look up, a site, the Battle of Oporto, the Battle of Salamanca, Vitoria, Toulouse. The reason that we have this perception that he's defensive is predominantly because we put so much on Waterloo and we spend so much time fixating on it. And yeah, Waterloo, defensive, absolutely. He's buying time for the Prussians to arrive. Of course, he's going to sit on the defensive and let Napoleon come to him. And any, any military
1: commander of any period from ancient greece all the way up to the guys currently fighting in 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 middle east and places every military commander would much rather fight a defensive battle than actually have to go and take an objective of course I mean, they really.
2: would. of course they would because you yeah. lose less men in the process and that's very much Embedded in Wellington's approach because he knows that Britain has this issue in terms of manpower. Britain doesn't like having a big standing army for reasons that date all the way back to the English Civil War and concerns Mm -hmm. about how it will be used. And so Britain never conscripts its force, it's a volunteer force, which means it's much smaller. Yes, okay, you have conscription into the militia, that's another story. But in terms of the regular army, it's a much smaller entity. And the whole point about Wellington is that he doesn't waste his men's lives. Napoleon famously said that he thought nothing of losing a huge number of men if it meant achieving the aims that he had. Wellington, on the other hand, turned around at one occasion when he was observing the French army just north of Lisbon and said, I could lick those men, i.e. beat them, but it would cost me 10,000 men. And this is the last army that Britain has left. We must take care of it. During the uh, In the aftermath of the Siege of baderhof when the British lose mm-hmm. 4,000 in the, the breaches, it's an utterly horrific assault. The Wellington tours the breaches the next day and he weeps, openly weeps at the sight of the dead. Because this is a guy who isn't kind of fixated so much on the glory. He is aware of that human sacrifice that comes with success. Yeah. And he just doesn't like it. His contemporary, Picton, one of the generals under his command, saw Wellington crying in the breeches and did not have a clue why Wellington was so upset. So in terms of their respective characters, actually, Wellington, for all that he was unquestionably an aristocratic snob and a real piece of work in terms of peering down his nose at the rank and file. He did feel that human element, unlike Napoleon, who saw his soldiers as a means to an end. And it's a really weird dichotomy that we have because Napoleon was great on the personal level, but didn't really care. Wellington, rubbish at interpersonal interaction, even with his officers, but he did care about the cost. There's one
1: potential that i just like to discuss with you, because there's one area of this period of history that I have actually looked into in some graphic detail. And that is the gentleman's pistol duel, of which we know that Wellington fought one. He did. Um, one you of two prime ministers. Yeah, one of two prime ministers to have fought a duel whilst serving as prime minister. Yeah, now he, they, they are said to have uh, both him and Will Chelsea have said to have both fired wide. However, rumours that uh, Wellington was just a crap shot may well have missed. What's your thought?
2: So there are so many, are so many things with this. One, what the hell is Wellington doing as Prime Minister? Sorry, I, I'm just kind of indulging in the rage element, but yeah. he's the Prime Minister of the nation. Yeah, yeah. What the hell is he doing fighting a duel? The reason he does it is because it's all tied up with notions of honour. But there is yeah. gross hypocrisy here, because he had hypocrisy
1: been. in a politician, a uh, prime minister. Astonishing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it it's utterly unheard of. Fortunately, we don't have this kind of issue anymore. Oh wait, um, no, hmm. no, no. <laughs> not that we could settle with pistols anyway. No, not with pistols. But Wellington had a commission in the army. The army's law explicitly forbade its officers from dueling, because you know. Dueling is bad for business if you, as an officer, get shot. That that's not great for command, because then you've got to find somebody to replace you. And Wellington, in the course of his career, had signed off on trials where people had lost their places in the army because of dueling. And yet he he is doing exactly the same thing. So talk about a hypocrite. Yeah, Yeah, not
1: just fighting the duel, issuing the challenge.
2: Yes. Well, that's a that's a whole thing in itself, isn't it? Because the the thing is if you refuse a challenge, if somebody provokes you to that point and you don't challenge, that's seen as you lacking manliness and lacking integrity and lacking honor. If you as the recipient of the challenge refuse to fight, then you lack manliness and lack mm-hmm. honor. And yet the law forbids you from doing this. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It's yeah. it's a ridiculous system. Did he fire wide? Well you're quite right. Wellington himself in fact admitted that he was a crap shot. We don't really know Whether or not he did, in terms of Winchelsea, he actually fires into the air. And the reason he does that is his second in the duel, the guy who's there to back him up, said, I will not be your second if you fire upon the Duke. So in reality, Wellington wasn't really in any danger, in part because there's this whole convention that where all of this is tied up with manliness, if you aim to kill, that is in itself unmanly. So the whole point of fighting a duel in the first place is utterly ridiculous yeah. because <laughs> all of these things just contradict one another.
1: Well, cracking. Well, thank you very, very much for that. I mean, that's that's opened my eyes. It's given us both a fair few things to to think about, and and I will continue to watch Sharp with a new angle, uh, particularly Sharp's Waterloo. Yeah. Um, but Zach, thank you very much for coming and getting that
2: off your chest. it has been an absolute pleasure. It was quite cathartic. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, History
1: Rageous Therapy. If you would like to know more about the period, then do listen to Zach's regular podcast, The Napoleonicist, and also you can catch him on History Hack as well. We're gonna put links to both of those in the show notes, along with links through to the charity websites, etc. And you can follow Zach on Twitter at Zed White History. But Zach Once again. Thank you for getting involved. Been an absolute joy. Thanks, Dad. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at, at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage because we want to know what really gets up your nose. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Podchaser, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, It really means a lot when you do that. Thanks a lot for listening. From all of us here at History Rage, bye-bye. bye bye.